this series is taboo. A taboo is the thing that, you know, the expression is the idea that, well, that's a taboo subject. People don't really talk about that. It's a little unorthodox to be mentioning that. And in the church world, if you're a, a Christian, and I think just about everybody in this room is, or you're somewhere on that faith journey, you, you probably realize that there are some real taboo subjects when you're trying to share your faith with a, with a, a non-Christian person, or even when you're thinking about your faith, there are some real taboo things when it comes to the Christian faith. And we, the truth is we think about them all the time, but we don't really talk about them a lot because the answers to some of these things are, are not, they don't make the gospel particularly enticing or attractive to people, or at least we think in our minds. So we're going to cover four of these different taboos. We're going to cover hell, which we'll do today. Yes, we will. We're going to cover money, science, and we're going to cover sex. So when people think about these things, you know, well, they say, okay, well, hell is, 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 you know, the church's way of making me feel guilty, so I'll become a part of the church or terrify me enough, and I'll become a Christian, right? That's what hell is, people think. You know, money, well, of course, that's what the church is always after. It's our money. So, you know, we only want to stay away from that. You know, the subject of science, well, we say, well, of course, naturalism and Darwinian evolution has disproven the Bible already, right? You Christians believe this crazy book is loaded with all these fanciful tales. And then, of course, the subject of sex, which is a huge, huge issue now with all of the, the variety of things going on, you know, the whole transgenderism and LGBTQ issues and all that stuff. But in, it, just in a basic sense, you know, the prevailing view is, well, okay, the Christians, they think, you know, just don't have it ever until you're married. And when you're married, don't enjoy it. It's just for having babies, right? These are some of the prevailing views that people have about these subjects. The question is, what does the Bible say about them? We think about them all the time. We're getting fed messages after me message after message about these subjects all the time. What does the Bible have to say about these things that are always, the truth be told, always floating around in the undercurrent of, of our, our own kind of thoughts, okay? So I'm going to cover the subject of hell today. I don't know when the last time is that I heard a message on hell uh, it's been a while since I've preached a message on hell, but I'm going to do that today. And you're going to hear about it in a way that may be a little, oh, I didn't think of it that way before. Hopefully, it will do that for you, and it will give you an appreciation, yes, an appreciation for the reality of hell. So, first, first observation for you from looking into the Scripture Number one, and this is going to seem really basic to you. Number one, there is, before we talk about hell, there is an afterlife. By this I mean there is something that happens after you pass from this physical world. And when, you're, when your time is up, when your number is up, as they say, and when your body is, is, is dead, there is something after this life. 
And you must, first of all, grasp this reality before you start talking about, okay, why is there a hell and all these questions that we ask, how can a loving God uh, have such a thing and how can he send people to such a place? First of all, acknowledge the reality that there is an afterlife. And the New Testament would argue this over and over and over again, in particular because of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, in a, in a long argument in 1 Corinthians 15, he cites a view that was around in Isaiah's day in Jerusalem, and he quotes it from Isaiah 22, the same view is around today. Uh, and many people will say, well, you know, there's nothing afterwards, so I might as well enjoy myself while I'm still around. I might as well just live my life the way that I want to live it and uh, experience the fullness of whatever I want, whatever experience, whatever pleasure I want, because tomorrow I'll be in the grave. And when I'm in the grave, it's lights out. It's over. So the, the, the quote is, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They said in Isaiah's day, and Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 15 in his argument to the Corinthians, and he says, well, hold on. He says, that point has merit if the dead are not raised. In a broader sense, if there's nothing after this life, then the idea of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die is true. But Paul turns around and he argues, no, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and therefore there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection from the dead, and the way that you live your life matters because it extends on into the future, you see. And so Paul right away and the New Testament acknowledges there is an afterlife. And we have a fascination with the afterlife, even though on the one hand we profess not to believe in it, on the other we have quite the fascination with the afterlife because point number two, the afterlife is supernatural. This we seem to, to, to ascertain or to intuit uh, in, our, in our experience, in our, you know, this kind of je ne sais quoi. We, we seem to acknowledge the reality that the afterlife, if it exists, it's supernatural. And by supernatural, I mean that it is not of this natural world, this order. It is, it is beyond what we hear and, and feel and touch and smell and experience today. It's supernatural. So example of this uh, little story that Jesus told only in the Gospel of Luke, uh, a very, very powerful story uh, in Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read this story to you. Uh, it's a story of three men, really. We think of it as two men, but it's really the story of three men. And Jesus tells the story for a reason. He wants the people to understand uh, that if they don't believe Moses, if they don't believe the prophets, then they're not going to believe even the Lord Jesus himself. And this is what he says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen 
and he lived in luxury every day. This is Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. You can open it in your Bible and just put it on your lap, and it's just all one little story, nice and compact. Rich man who was dressed in purple, that's the, that's the, the, the garment of wealth back in that day, fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate, so the man actually had a home with gates, was laid a beggar. The beggar has a name. His name is Lazarus. And he's covered with sores, and he longs to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs, Jesus tells the story, came and licked his sores. Quite a picture. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, or in some translations, Hades, we'll get to that later, what that's about. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham. That's a, Abraham is dead, okay? He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Again, a very, very intense image there, very strong story. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The tables have been turned. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so the rich man tries another question. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Again, this is Jesus telling this story in a way predicting his own death and resurrection and the fact that if people don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe him. No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to, to him, if they do not listen to Moses, if they do not listen to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The afterlife is supernatural. So here you have Abraham, who died hundreds of years before. You have Lazarus, who has died. You have the rich man who has died and was buried, it says. The rich could afford a, uh, perhaps a proper tomb. And yet these, these three men are somehow alive. Well, that's not possible unless there is a supernatural. So the afterlife is supernatural. The, these men were dead, yet they're alive. Their memories are intact. Uh, they're, they, they can feel things. They're able to communicate. They're able to recognize one another. And yet their bodies are in the grave. This is not possible unless there is a supernatural. And again, on one side, 
in the culture, we talk about naturalism and we say, well, we don't believe in this nonsense. But on the other, we're fascinated by it. Uh, the number one movie in the box office right now, soon to be, if it isn't already, the number one horror movie of all time in the box office in history is a movie called It. Some of you have probably seen the movie, for uh, you, if you've seen it. This is about a, 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 well, just to put it bluntly, this is a horror movie about a supernaturally, presumably demonized clown that devours children based on their fear of it. And so the whole idea is if they learn not to be afraid of it, then they can somehow conquer it. The whole thing is supernatural, and people are flocking to this movie, soon to dethrone another horror movie called The Exorcist. Back in the 70s, this movie was made. We have a fascination with the supernatural, and we lump all of this stuff together into one big, one big pile. The afterlife, things like the occult, uh, we, we wrap all of this into one thing, and we're fascinated by this. Uh, you'll see in a couple of weeks another movie, another remake of another movie called Flatliners, where people attempt to cross the other side and make themselves temporarily lose their lives and so they can see what's on the other side and then somehow come back. Another remake of another movie from the 80s. We are fascinated with the supernatural. Even within the, the, the context of the church, we are, our ears are constantly tickled by the supernatural. Uh, it, when you talk about the future and you talk about things like the second coming and the rapture and the whole subject of eschatology, there's a group of Christians who believe that the world effectively is going to end today. Did you know that? September 23rd. So the, the, the theory is that uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and there's an interpretation of this that's, that's floating around out there, that a certain series of astronomical uh, constellations is going to appear above Israel. It's going to happen today, and planet X or planet Nibiru, whatever you want to call it, is going to crash into Earth, and the rapture is going to happen, and this is based on a, 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 its... There's videos that have gone completely viral, like on wildfire on, on, on the internet about this thing. And there are people who seriously believe that this is going to happen today based on a very strange interpretation of Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Can I tell you something? If the rapture happens today, it's going to have nothing to do with what those people are saying. Okay, because no man knows the day or the hour, but we, our ears are electrified by this idea, and it's lumped into this whole thing of the supernatural, and the afterlife clearly is something that is supernatural, is not of this world, is not of our understanding, and this is why we're so fascinated with the afterlife and with death. Either we have a terror of it or a fascination of it, which brings us to our next observation here. Death is not a, an automatic door to heaven. It is not. I have done many, many funerals where the overlying presumption of the audience, of the friends, and of the family of the deceased was, well, they're in heaven. That's where people go when they die. 
or maybe they're an angel. Uh, that maybe that's what happens when they die. But th- th- and they think this is sort of automatic. Well, oh, as soon as a person dies, you know, if they, as long as they're not a horrendous, you know, murderer or something, then they're automatically in heaven. Well, this is not true. It is death is not the automatic door to heaven. It is the door, however, to what's on the other side. It is the portal to what is on the other side. In the story, we see that both of these men, uh, the rich man who has no name, which is interesting, he seems to be known only for his riches, and Lazarus, uh, who has a name, and uh, his name has a meaning, we'll get to that in a minute, they both go through the gate, as it were, but they're in two different places. One is in a place of paradise, and the other is in a place of torment. The, the assumption that, well, as soon as anyone dies, they somehow go to heaven is a false assumption. And we should not make that type of assumption. Uh, again, I've done many funerals where that assumption has been made, but it is not a correct one. Uh, the afterlife, uh, another observation we see just from this story, is not under our control. And that's what scares us about it. It's not under our control. It's under God's control fully. So in this life, in many ways, we can do what we want. In many ways, we have, we have for the time being this whole thing of free will that God gives to us because He freely wants us to freely choose Him and worship Him. This is why He gives us the gift of free will. But when you move into the afterlife, friends, you're dealing with something that is no longer under your control. And this is why it's a scary thing and a fascinating thing for us at the same time. You see, even in the story, this man, the rich man, was very, very wealthy before he died. He had a house with gates. means he was very wealthy. He wore fine linen. He was very wealthy. He wore purple, very wealthy. Uh, But his riches got him nothing in the afterlife. Zero. He He couldn't buy his way out of the place of torment where he was. There was nothing, that, that it, there's no relationship at all to the power and the wealth that he had when he was there in torment. His riches got him nothing. And then he went and he made uh, two requests of Abraham. Interesting. So he says to, to Abraham, if you, if you look at the story, he, he asks Abraham to have pity on him. And he calls him father. Again, this is a, this is a Jewish man. Both of these men who died were both Jewish men. So he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and do what? You send Lazarus, because I know who Lazarus is. He's the guy who I passed every day when I came home, who was outside the gate of my beautiful estate, who was begging for food. I never gave him any. The dogs were licking his sores. Can you send Lazarus, please? Send him to, to, down to where I am and have him cool the tip of my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. What a strange, strange question he's asking. He doesn't seem to ask Abraham to get him out of the torment that he's in. Presumably, he might think that Abraham has the authority to do that. No, he doesn't even ask that question. He says, you send Lazarus to me to give me relief. 
And the answer from Abraham effectively is no. He says, son, again, this man was a Jewish man, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, didn't you? You're very wealthy. You're a very wealthy fellow. You had all that. You had purple. You had fine linen. You had a house with gates. You're a very wealthy, very powerful man. And Lazarus, he didn't receive good things, did he? You know, remember, remember Mr. Richman when you used to pass him on the road every day? Do you remember that? But now the tables are turned, aren't they? And that's another, another just, just an aside lesson for us. You know, there's going to be many, many surprises on the other side. Many of us are going to have certain expectations. Oh, so-and-so, so-and-so will certainly be in heaven. But so-and-so over there, no, 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 they're not going to heaven when they die. There may be some, some tables turned. And here the tables are very much turned. And he says, well, now he's being comforted. And you're the one now who's in agony. And besides this, there's a big gap. You may be able to see us from where you are, but we can't go there. You can't come here. You, you, it's not permitted. You cannot do that. So you cannot have your way, Mr. Richman, here. It's not under your control. Even with all your wealth, even with all the power that you had, now you're playing by a different set of rules. And it's God's rules. And so then he says, well, let's try something else. Can you send Lazarus? Because I remember Lazarus. He's the guy who is outside my gate, right? Can you send Lazarus and send him to my father's house and let him warn my five brothers, because I have five brothers. So let him go and let him warn them. And so this is denied as well. And Abraham says, no. He says, shouldn't they listen to Moses? Shouldn't they listen to the prophets? And then the conversation continues, no. He says, no to Abraham. Imagine, no. But if someone from the dead goes to them, ah, you know, a dead person comes back and says, repent, 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 then they're going to change. <laughs> and the answer is, no, no, they're not going to change. If they don't listen to Moses and they don't listen to the prophets, they're not even going to listen if someone comes back from the dead. It's not your rules anymore, rich man. It's God's rules that you're playing under now, and you cannot change them. This idea that you can do what you want anytime you want is now over. Now you're in a place that you can no longer control. The afterlife is not under our control, but it's under God's control. And the afterlife is an extension of the choices that we make in this life. This idea that God sends people to hell as if he... You know, he's somehow waiting there with his arms folded and a stern look on his face. He says, you there, I'm going to send you to hell. This is not an idea that's really founded in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is it's an extension of the choices that we make in this life. This rich man, he shows no repentance, even though he's in this place of torment. Do you hear any words of repentance from him in the story? No. And he still wants to use Lazarus as like his, his, little, his little pet or something. Can you send Lazarus to do this? Can you send Lazarus to do that? Where's the, where's the repentance and the change of heart of this man? Nothing. He's exactly the same as he was before he died. And his choices 
in the life that he lived led to a conclusion where he was now where he was. The Lazarus, on the other hand, and it's a bit of a play on words, his name means one whom God helps. So presumably, Lazarus was a person who walked by faith in God, who had a living faith in God, as demonstrated somehow by the way that he lived his life. We don't know anything about him except he was poor and that he, was, he begged for money and that he was in bad, bad shape. Uh, the rich man, on the other hand, would have passed Lazarus all the time. He knew him by name. He was outside his gate. And the rich man did nothing to help Lazarus. On the contrary, Lazarus, God has helped me. You see the contrast. So you have the rich man who doesn't demonstrate a relationship with God. He may be a Jew by birth and by ethnicity, but he doesn't demonstrate a relationship with God because the way that he lives his life toward his fellow man is one of, well, I don't care. This, this guy's at my gate. I, 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 it's too much trouble for me. I don't care. But now I want him to do things for me on the other side. Wow, no repentance. But Lazarus, again, he, somehow he learned. We don't know details about him, but he was one who found his help in God. So we cannot say, well, you know, this rich man was, was thrown into this place of torment uh, because, you know, God just wanted to play some kind of sick joke on him and turn the tables on him. No, it was an extension of the choices that he made in life. The way that he behaved with Lazarus is indicative of the fact that the man had no living walk with God that affected the way that he treated his neighbor. Lazarus, on the other hand, his very name, God has helped me. The afterlife is an extension of what we do in this life. If we choose to reject God who is revealing himself to us, then when we pass through the curtain of death, that will continue. And that is, in a sense, what hell is. Uh, and we'll give a little bit of explanation here as we close. The, the word that's, that's used, uh, that Jesus uses here, is very peculiar. Uh, the word in the Greek language that he uses is the word Hades. It's a word that he uses only one time in the gospel record. It's used nine other times in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus had a more preferred word that he used that we translate into hell in the English language. It's the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a place. It was a garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem. It was always on fire. Uh, back then, they didn't have, you know, garbage trucks and a whole garbage system in the first century. You know, now it's, it's time to take out the garbage, dear. You know, it didn't work like that. You take the garbage and you burn the garbage. How many of you know you, there's, there's many places around the world where it's like that today? Well, back there, they used to take it and they used to burn it in this valley, the valley of, uh, of Ben-Hinnom, uh, outside of Jerusalem. The place was always on fire. You could even go and visit it today. Um, and there were many detestable things that happened in that place in the Old Testament. A lot of uh, I idolatry and all kinds of worship of false gods and some very heinous things happened there. And so it became known as this place that was always on fire, burning with the garbage of the city. And this is the word that Jesus chooses to use when he speaks of this idea of hell, this place that's always on fire a place of eternal fire, he talked about. And this is the preferred word that he used. The word Hades is only used once here. And Hades and hell, in a technical sense, are not the exact same thing. 
Uh, they are not. If you ever uh, have an argument or a debate uh, with a Jehovah's Witness, they will remind you of this. I've had many of them. And in a technical sense, Hades and hell are not the same thing. In the Jewish mind, when a person died, they would go into the afterlife, and the, the Hebrew word was the word Sheol. This is where they went. And Sheol had two places. It had a good place, and it had a bad place. The bad place was this idea of Hades in the Greek language, a place of torment, a place where this rich man was. Uh, the good place of Sheol was Abraham's side, or in some translations, Abraham's bosom, you'll see in older translations. So this was the idea in, in, in the Jewish mind. In the New Testament, very, very similar concept, except uh, when Jesus is raised from the dead, he takes all of those who are in this place of paradise or Abraham's bosom, and he brings them into heaven is the word that's commonly used there. So now when a believer dies and passes through the gate of death, a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus, that person passes immediately into heaven, into the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But yet the people who pass from this life and who have rejected God and rejected the revelation of God, rejected the salvation message uh, through the Lord Jesus, they go to this place of torment, this place called Hades in the Greek language. Hell, in a technical sense, is presently unoccupied. You may never have heard that before. Hell, in a technical sense, is presently unoccupied. It will, however, be occupied, unfortunately, and we see this clearly uh, in the book of Revelation. The, the, one of the last chapters of Revelation, I'll just flip there and, and give you this passage um, to show you the difference. Uh, it's a passage that if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard it before. Verses 11 to 15, way at the back end of Revelation. And this is something that happens in the, at the end of time. This happens after the rapture. This happens after the second coming. This happens after uh, a whole number of events. It's right at the end. Then I saw a great white throne, the writer says, and him who was seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. I'll pause for a second. Uh, in the Jewish uh, calendar this, this past week uh, was a very important uh, date, uh, the, the Jewish New Year. Uh, was uh, celebrated whatever it was, Wednesday or Thursday. I think it's a two-day celebration that they do. It's a very, very important date because in Rosh Hashanah, or the Jewish New Year, the, the idea for Jews is that this is the day where God writes you in the book of life. He decides whether you'll be rich or poor this year, whether you'll live or die, whether you'll be healthy uh, or, or sick, your, your name gets put in the book of life every Rosh Hashanah. And you have 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which will be uh, September 30th, I think. Uh, and in those 10 days, you repent, you do good works, you go to temple, 
Uh, you give your employees a raise. I've joked about this. If you work for Jewish people, ask them for a raise now. You may get it because it's a very, very serious time for them because they can effectively change God's decision through acts of repentance, through a broken and contrite heart. They can change God's mind. And then on Yom Kippur, it is decided and it is sealed in the book of life. And here you see another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, there's that word, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That, friends, is, is this word hell, that, or the word that we use for hell. This is the second death, the writer says. Uh, the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in a technical sense, this is a future thing. Uh, hell currently is not occupied. Hades certainly is occupied. But for all intents and purposes, the experience that one has, whether it's Hades or whether it's the final hell, it's the same thing. It's a place of eternal separation from God. It's a place of torment. It's a place of punishment. Jesus used images like weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see, we see things that almost contradict themselves in the imagery that's used. It's so strong. And then immediately what happens to us when we start to grasp this idea of hell is we say, how can God do that? How can, he, how can he create such a place? How can such a place exist? I mean, you know, you say he doesn't send people there, okay, but forever eternal suffering? Can't he just end the person's life? Well, remember, this is why we started with the idea there is an afterlife. You're born once, but in a sense, you never die. Your, your body will physically die, but you will continue on beyond the grave. This is part of what it means when God says he's created us in his image. There's something infinite about humanity. Passes on even beyond the grave, but yet we still struggle with this idea. And here's the problem. What we do, and this is the final, this, the final point, is that we separate God's love and God's justice. And we somehow think that justice and love exist independently from one another. When you think about justice, when you think about love, and you think about those concepts and you meditate on them, you will see that those two concepts are inextricably woven together. When you stand at an altar and you say that you love this person that you are going to marry, and you pledge yourself and vow yourself to that person till the day that you die, in sickness and in health, you know, till death do us part, and you vow yourself to that person. Don't think to yourself that you don't also have a sense of justice that's intertwined in there. If something happens to that person whom you love, you will want justice. If, if that person 
who you vowed yourself to does something to severely disrupt that relationship that you have, you will feel a profound sense of a need of justice. If you, any of you have children who are in this room and you love your children, and, and you know, we all say we love our children. Well, there is a justice that we also have come to, to appreciate and use. When our children do things that they shouldn't do, we have to impose a system of justice, don't we? We don't say, well, we love you, but you'll never, ever be punished for anything that you do wrong. Oh, we love you so much, our dear son, our dear daughter. Sure, you can go and do whatever you want. Sure, you can go and use drugs. You can go and use, do all. It's no problem for us. Yeah, you're 10 years old. You want to leave the house. You want to get married and join the circus. No problem. Yeah, it's okay. You yelled and screamed at your teacher. You know, you threw something at them. You bought a gun. You tried to shoot them. No problem. No, we say, no, there has to be justice for what you did because... We love you, that's why. And you cannot separate the two. If God is a God of love, and God is a God of ethics, and God is a God who is moral, then God is obliged to judge sin. He's obliged to do it. He cannot be a God of love without also being a God of justice. And if he's a God of justice... He cannot simply be a God of justice without being a God of love. It is the love that fuels the justice. It is the justice that fuels the love. The two of them are inextricably woven together. So this idea, we love, the culture loves to say, oh, God is a God of love. Oh, Jesus is a, is a God of love. You know, they don't read the Gospels, of course. You see, Jesus is a God of love, but he's a God who's holy. Uh, and so this idea that God is love, we have no problem with that. When we talk about God being a God of justice, uh, but you can't separate one from the other in the end. And this we see beautifully displayed where? On the cross. That's where we see love and justice on glorious display for us. On that note, I'd like the band if they would come and we're going to, to remember uh, the greatest example, I think, of love and justice, uh, they, they come together uh, beautifully so on that cross. Um, and uh, we just want to make sure that everybody who wants to participate in communion, that you have emblems today. I need some. If you'll bring me a, bring me a little set, surely that would be really, really helpful. Remember, love and justice don't exist independently. What does John 3.16 say? We know it so well. For God so loved the world that he sat in heaven and just said how much he loves the world. Nope. For God so loved the world that he just said, oh, it's okay. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I forgive you. Nope. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His one and only son. How did he give him? He gave him ultimately on a cross, a place of justice, a place of atonement for sin, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not perish, will not be lost, will not go to a place like Hades, but will receive everlasting life. This is where God wants the problem of sin solved. 
He wants it solved on the cross. And he wants people to voluntarily say, Jesus, I accept what you did for me on that cross. I understand that I have have transgressed your law, that I have walked away from you, that I am a sinful person. I understand that and I want to be forgiven for my sin and be placed in fellowship with you again. That can only happen if God himself, because of his love and because of his desire for justice against sin, goes to the cross himself and pays the price himself. And this is exactly what we see in John 3.16. It's exactly what we see in the Gospels. And it's exactly what we celebrate when we observe communion.